Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you for gathering here today. Uh, welcome to Second Service. Uh, right there on those seats is where Kent Lotus and his family would worship with us. Uh, they are today on Orcas Island taking care of, uh, you know, logistics. Uh, but they're also uh, journeying through this uh, life and death situation. So, um, and knowing Kent, uh, I would like to do this for him and his family. I think they would love it. I'm going to just take a quick scan of video of you guys because this is where he would be here today. I want to ask you to wave at them and uh, shout out whatever you like. And I think it would put a big fat smile on their faces today. Yeah? Okay. Ready? If we'll start on this side. Go. It's a little disappointing. It's a good try. <laughs> but he knows who we are. Um, at our church, we do this thing called storytelling. And we do that as a way to uh, sort of hit that authenticity button, but also kind of drop some pretense. And then we do a lot of homework to try to get it up to snuff so that we're not missing the excellence mark either. But it's a really a way for us to connect to each other uh, as a church community. We kind of do this one Sunday at a time in this way. So today our storyteller is Jeff Parton, who is your friendly neighborhood chiropractor. Jeff, come on up and tell us your story. Hey guys, thanks for having me here. Um, I just started coming here um, probably about in March and I love this place. You guys are so welcoming and um, so thank you for that. Thank you for making me feel at home. Um, one of the things that I did when I um, had come here is I'm like, okay, I wanna get involved. So I started getting involved in um, going to a Bible study and I've met some awesome people that way. And one of the things that they ask you to do is they have those little cards and they're like, um, fill them out to get connected. So I did and Julie asked me to talk and here I am. Um, so I figured I could share my story um, with you and it might kind of um, hit close to home for some of you. When I've always grown up with the Lord, but I, my relationship is a lot different now than it was say when I was a little kid or even in my 20s or 30s, I used to think God was like the, the God of crisis and emergencies. Um, you would only talk to God when you had some kind of serious issue or if you really wanted something. So crisis and emergencies are like the ATM God. Okay, God, give me this, give me that. But I didn't really have a relationship. Um, it wasn't until I had some really fun experiences. And when I say fun, I mean um, like good old Canadian sarcasm fun that it actually wasn't a good experience. But I had a bunch of things happen in my life. Um, I got separated, which soon turned to a divorce. And then I ended up getting um, what's called Bell's palsy. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but half my face was paralyzed, um, like a little mini stroke. So that was really fun. And I had um, some problems with the chiropractic board. I had some note issues and, you know, that was awesome. And then I had where my mom passed away. And my mom was like my rock and my support. And really, I think one of the only people that actually ever loved me unconditionally other than Jesus. So that was really hard. And in the meantime, I had kind of lost most of my finances that I had saved up. And then just to kind of put a little cherry on top, I had... Um, where I was alienated from my son. 
Um, I got a text from my ex-wife saying that my son didn't want to spend any more time with me because I was embarrassing, awkward, and had some different beliefs. Um, just kind of top things off. So that was really hard. And um, the whole experience was really hard. And I basically had got to the point where I was about ready to give up. I kind of felt like I was Elijah on the banks of the river and saying, God, just take me. I can't do this anymore. And I basically probably for about a year or two years, I kind of just locked myself um, in my room with my Bible and just listened to the pastors that I resonated with and just focused on the word, meditated on the word. And one of the things that I did is I would create lists of different scriptures or different um, topics. And I would like Google scriptures on strength and find everything I could to, to give me strength. And I would just read those and meditate on those or joy, because needless to say, I didn't have a lot of joy or hope or faith or blessings or forgiveness. That was a big one too. And I would just go over those and whatever I needed in my spiritual tank at the time, I would just meditate on those and, and pray on those and just go over them over and over. And it kind of got to the point where I got were so good at those that I just basically walking down the hallway, I'd constantly be going over scriptures because I had so much like, you know, this negative self-talk going on in my head and stuff like that, that, you know, so it was awesome. It was like just, I really kind of was able to sort of change my mind with that. And, um, you know, it was a pretty awesome experience. Um, as I was going through this whole journey, I had talked to one of the pastors that I, you know, had got support with. And he said, okay, you're holding on to things. Um, you're holding on to these things as like idols. And because I thought, okay, well, if I get this back, if I get this back, then I'm going to be happy. And I didn't, I mean, none of us likes to hear that at first when somebody says that to us. I mean, it kind of didn't feel good. And I'm like, okay, that's not necessarily true. But the more I thought about it, the more that I really was holding on to those things. So, and I realized just in the course of this process that it's like, you know what, that stuff is just garbage anyway. You don't really need it. I mean, you're going to come to this world with nothing. You leave this world with nothing too. All we need is our relationship with God. And so... Really, that's the thing that motivates me now. I mean, obviously, we all want to have security and we all want to be loved, but the most important thing in our life is our relationship with our God. And that's, it's just really made a huge difference for me and helped me. Um, there's a number of stories that I've listened to and I've gone over. And, um, you know, one of those that really resonates for me is the story of the carrot and the egg and the coffee. And I guess I um, should tell you, my favorite scripture that I was going over at this time was James 1. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work in you so that you will be more mature and complete and not lacking anything. So the story of the carrot egg and the coffee, there was a little girl who, or a young woman, who had a bunch of stress in her life and things were not going well for her and she asked her grandmother about it and her grandma said, okay, let's go in the kitchen and she got some boiling water, put an egg in there, put a carrot in there and put a coffee, coffee beans in the water. Let them boil for 20 minutes and then she fished them out and said to her daughter, granddaughter, what do you see? And she's like, well, I see carrot, eggs and coffee. And she's like, no, touch them and feel them, what do you see? And basically the carrot was hard when it went in and it became soft when it was under stress, and the egg was soft, and it became hard when it was under stress. And the coffee, basically, it changed, and it basically became the water, and it changed the water. So 
all of us are different and or can be different under stress or all kinds of stress are different, but it's how you relate to the stress. Um, a diamond is basically just a hunk of coal that's under intense pressure. And, you know, it's the same thing with like all three of those things, the carrot, egg, and the coffee. I and mean, the coffee actually changed its circumstance or changed the situation around it. And really that's what I want to do. And that's what I want to be. I want to be the coffee. And I want to just change the circumstance. And I just want to show, you know, show people the love that God has for me. Um, and, you know, it's awesome. So anyway, I really appreciate you guys letting me talk here. Um, I'm going to share our scripture today. And it's from Proverbs 2. Um, it's going to be verses 1 to 20. My child, if you receive my words and store up my commands within you, by making your ear attentive to wisdom and by turning your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for discernment, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand how to fear the Lord and you will discover knowledge about God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up effective counsel for the upright and is like a shield for those who live with integrity, to guard the paths of the righteous and to protect the way of his pious ones. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good way. For is, wisdom will enter your heart and moral knowledge will be attractive to you. Discretion will protect you, understanding will guard you. To deliver, to deliver you from the way of the wicked, from those speaking perversity, who leave the upright paths to walk out of the dark ways, who delight in doing evil, they rejoice in perverse evil, whose paths are morally crooked and who are devious in their ways, to deliver you from the adulteress, from the sexually loose women, who speaks flattering words, who leaves the husband from her younger days and forgets her marriage covenant made before God. For her house sinks down to earth and her paths lead to the place of the departed spirits. None who go into her will return, nor will they reach the paths of life. So you will walk the way of good people and keep the paths of the righteous, for the upright will reside in the hand and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be removed from the land and the treacherous will be torn away from it. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Jeff. Um, today's uh, sermon time is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we, as a church, belong to a larger group of churches. And this group of churches is uh, called a denomination. And the denomination consists of about 900 or so churches. Our denomination was founded in 1885. And uh, there's something really unique and special about, I think, who we are, called the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, <clears throat> when I was starting to start churches, uh, I started researching denominations because I realized if I was just an independent, you know, leader with an independent church, uh, that was a little bit dangerous. I needed to answer to somebody, and we as a church needed to answer to a higher authority and belong to a group of churches so that we can walk together and be a safety net and companion, uh, companions on the journey. And so I did a bunch of homework, and I landed on the Evangelical Covenant Church because I loved their central ethos. And that was that we are going to major 
on, on only the majors. And we're going to keep things minor if they are minor, non-essential issues. And then the question comes up, well, what's a major issue? What's a minor issue? And so we've been working that out since 1885. And uh, we had a historic moment a few weeks ago in Omaha, Nebraska. And in response to that, I sent a letter to our church. And just by a show of hands, can I see in this room how many of you received and read that letter? So that's not everyone. Um, I wanted to mark this occasion as more than just uh, a letter uh, via email. And so the leadership, we thought it would be appropriate to have a public moment like this. And so I invite you into this moment. I realize that a lot of you are here for the first time and you're not familiar with the denomination or even our church. Uh, we invite you to be in this space with us and uh, partake and take uh, from it what you can. I hope that it nourishes you and is helpful to you. And if you're going to join us, then I hope it <clears throat> is an invitation for you to come on in. The water is fine. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the letter and I'm going to make some commentary. I do have highlighted in my notes the phrases that I want to make remarks on, but uh, I would ask for a little bit of grace from you. I may uh, go off the cuff a little bit and respond to the moment here. A couple of thoughts before I start reading. I received more responses to this letter than I have to anything else I've ever sent in my uh, tenure here at the church. And so that tells me something. There was a diversity in the responses that I received, letting me know that our church somehow is able to hold together many different kinds of people from many different life situations and circumstances with all different kinds of views on this issue of human sexuality. And what that means is that practically for us, I want to give us a couple of guidelines. Number one, Try not to make assumptions. Please lessen the number of assumptions that you make, especially when you are uh, explicitly relating to one another. And if you have to make assumptions, please make generous assumptions. Assume that the person you're interacting with is not evil, is not dumb, has done their homework, has thought about some things, and has lived some life. Be respectful of the person that you are sitting next to in the room with. In the course of your exchange, try to lead with questions rather than with answers, especially answers uh, that they're not asking questions about. The moment may not be about you. It may be about something other than you. And try to hold space for that. And last but not least, uh, the Apostle Paul warns us when we're having conversations with non-essential issues that we disagree about, Paul says, don't judge the other person. Don't condemn the other person because when you do that, you break the relationship and you break the heart of the God who died for the person that you are judging and condemning. And in his context, it was about food that was, uh, you know, uh, used in the service of worshiping idols. And some people felt it was okay to eat, and others thought that was blasphemy. And so people who were abstaining from that food were judging the people, and then people who were eating the food were judging the people who were abstaining. 
And Paul says, don't break the relationship. God died for both groups. My hope today in reading this letter is to help define our church and to clarify our mission together as we move forward from this. So I'm going to read the letter now. Dear Evergreen, I recently returned from Omaha, Nebraska, where our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, ECC or Covenant, held its annual meeting. The way our governance works, the annual meeting exercises the highest authority in our governing structure, and it was at this meeting that the delegates voted to remove one covenant church and two covenant pastors. The church and pastors were accused of violating the covenant's position and guidelines regarding same-sex marriage, though actual reasons for the way people voted varied. Pause here. Uh, We were asked certain questions, and we were asked to vote on those questions. For example, it was, Uh, They were accused of certain charges, quote-unquote. Were they guilty of those charges? An overwhelming amount of the delegates voted, over 90% voted yes because the parties said, yes, we are guilty of those charges. So there was no reason to vote other than that. And then we were asked to vote on whether they should be removed from the roster of churches or from the roster of pastors, And people had different reasons for why they voted the way they did. It wasn't always in response to the question. Just so I mentioned this so that you understand uh, how to interpret better the votes. It doesn't all mean what it literally means. It means a multitude of things. This event caught the attention of the media, including CNN and the New York Times. Two things to note about this. Number one, Uh, We are not the first denomination to go through something like this. There has been uh, a string of these decisions and votes uh, that's been happening, so it's kind of a cultural phenomenon. It marks a cultural, I think, inflection point. Secondly, the world is watching. There's lots of other things that we do they don't care about. The New York Times isn't writing about our homeless ministry. They weren't here when Pastor Bud died and the great legacy that he left. But they wrote about this, and our job is to ask, why did they write about it? What are they watching for? What do they care about? How are they judging the church? I will try to communicate to you some things, though not all, and I will try to be as concise as possible. A lot of words and phrases I use are loaded, and for me, in my mind, there's hours of conversation to be had, but I had to reduce it to its most succinct word or phrase. And I'm not going to unpack all of it, obviously not, but just know there's so much more than you are literally hearing. And my prayer has been that you would be guided by the Holy Spirit to hear and read between the lines here. All three votes to remove are carried by a supermajority or two-thirds vote. This act was a historic first for the covenant since its founding in 1885, meaning that we have never involuntarily removed a church or a pastor. Lots of churches have left the denomination and lots of pastors have transitioned out, but never involuntarily. They chose to do so of their own accord. Given the emotional intensity, all that led up to it, the complexity of the issues and the newness of it all, the process was not perfect 
and many mistakes were made along the way, which added more conflict and frustration to the process and the outcomes. Uh, there were some fights that happened. There, were, there, was even phys- there, were, there was even one physical altercation that I'm aware of. Race and immigration issues got somehow intertwined with this issue, and ICE was called, and uh, people who were uh, of Latino descent, they were scared for their lives. They were coming to Omaha to vote, but some of them got scared off because uh, ICE was called, and they, were gonna, they said they were going to be there to deport people. Uh, were, uh, there was racism that got thrown into the mix, and several African-American pastors uh, got threatened, and there was threats of physical violence. Uh, there was questions about, should it be simple majority? Should it be super majority? There was suspicions about why was it in Omaha, Nebraska, where uh, it's more conservative in Omaha, and it's more convenient for Southern and Midwest churches who are more conservative to go there, and are they trying to swing the vote, and what's going on? And there was just a low, low trust for some people, high, high suspicion for others. It's a really painful time to be a family of churches. The aftermath continues. Reactions, tears, conversations, strategies. This is long from being in the rearview mirror. What culminated in Omaha had been in the making for at least six years. And lots of different narratives and contradicting details are out there. Instead of trying to speak for everyone or for someone else, here I will try to speak for myself. From a place of partial awareness, and while I'm in the thick of it personally, I've also been in many hours of conversation and contemplation, and you might just be getting started. That's the start line effect. I'm aware that while some may feel deeply impacted, for others, this matter is not as relevant. Let me try sharing, teaching, and leading a bit here. I continue to feel heartbroken. I do want you to know, church, that this hit me really hard on an emotional level. Um, I found myself randomly weeping uh, for three days, and then after that, it was just like, I would just start talking or thinking about it, and I would feel things, and it was, it was really um, surprising even to me why this was impacting me so much. So then I started praying and asking God, what's going on with me, God? What is this about for me? And then uh, the following uh, came to flood my memory. When I planted a church back in 2003, in the first sermon, I talked about how Jesus was safe and holy, how he touched lepers, ate with tax collectors, and hung out with prostitutes and Samaritans. When he did, instead of Jesus becoming defiled, they became cleansed. Instead of Jesus becoming infected, they became healed. Jesus was holy in a way that healed others instead of judging them. I said, that's, I said that it's not that Jesus loved, quote-unquote, sinners more, but that knowing how to love those branded as sinners demonstrated the reach of God's love, its ability to pick up where human love fails for a myriad of reasons. Then I made the specific point that one way our startup church would know we are doing Jesus' ministry is if gay people would feel safe enough to worship with us. And we would know our holiness was like Jesus if we could be agents of acceptance and healing rather than of judgment and condemnation. Back then, the conversation and culture around LGBTQ issues were very different. But even then, I believed that loving those that society 
religious society, namely, had disenfranchised as unworthy would be the defining way to showcase God's love. I fear the misconstruing of God's love. I fear communicating the wrong message. I fear losing even more credibility. Christians drew first blood, and it can look like we keep drawing more blood. This issue is primarily about the gospel, about God's love, and how it ought to be practiced in today's culture for today's people. The essence of Jesus' message and mission was to show us how to love God by loving neighbor. Everything else is supposed to be strategy. And this is where our church comes in. As a pastor, my commitment is to keep working out how to love people better, atoning for my sins, making amends, and learning how to do better. Somehow, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we are asked to do truth in love. Is there a way to do both? I am more than ever focused on what it means to practice a third way. The first way is for everyone to agree. The second way is for everyone to be suppressed. The third way is the covenant was founded on being this third way to major on only the majors, to allow for a diversity of non-essential issues, which are, a, which are most of the issues, to demonstrate a center-set model, to disagree as a where-is-it-written-asking community, to be mission friends with all who fear thee. I love the ideals of the covenant, to be biblical, devotional, relational, and missional. I hate it that LGBTQ issues are being used to divide mission friends, maybe by the church, maybe by the culture, maybe by both, and maybe by Satan himself. Divorce used to tear the church asunder, but now as the church and culture have matured, it's less a theological issue and more of a pastoral one. Evergreen, let's be the church, a covenant church that can find the third way, a way that's not undifferentiated and all the same, a way that's not suppressive and avoidant, but a way full of grace and truth. A request, if you have questions or concerns, please email them to me directly. Then based on the response from all of you, the staff and leadership teams, we, we will figure out what might be the best way to get talking about some of these issues as a third-way community. Maybe a meeting, maybe meetings, large and small, maybe some workshops, maybe some other resources, maybe all of the above. And then I listed out some covenant resources that you can click on and read up on. And then I conclude by saying, there are many other links I could include here, but I want to start with the covenant ones. If you are interested in the details of how, dra how the drama unfolded, if you want to read social media posts of many people weighing in, if you want to read other accounts of what happened, I can provide all of that and more. Thank you for starting here. Peter Sung, lead pastor at Evergreen Covenant Church. Church, if you Google the population and how many people in our country are LGBTQ, the last time I did that, it was about 5% of the population. It's not a huge population. Is it possible for us, without getting divided, without having to be all the same, figure out how to be Jesus for the LGBTQ community? Is it possible for us to stop avoiding this people group? Do you know that 
If you, one of the resources, Covenant Resources, says that about 87% or something really high of the homeless teens in America who, are, who identify with the LGBTQ group, about 87% of them come from Christian homes. How many percentage of Jesus' population do you think were prostitutes? Not very many at all. What percentage of Jesus' population were tax collectors or lepers, so-called sinners? Jesus talked about the one being pursued while the 99 are being left behind. That's not math. That's expressing his heart. And he's not saying that tax collectors are more lovable. He's saying that that group, because they're marginalized, because they feel so illegitimate, have been so invalidated and so misunderstood and abused, somehow God's love has to reach the least of these if it's God's love at all. Because we know human love fails, but we know God's love is not supposed to. That's why we exist as a church. And so is there a way for our church to figure this out together without losing the scriptures, without losing our integrity, but taking on humility, taking on a posture, becoming a student of God's word, becoming a student of our culture? Is there a way for us to finally get around to doing this? Can we be bothered to do this? I don't have the answers. I'm asking you, actually. Can we do this? I think we're supposed to try. And so that's my plea with all of us. I don't want to get lost the way the church got lost for a decade or two around the issue of divorce. And we hurt, we hurt so many people. The people who needed the church were who needed the church the most, felt all unwelcome in churches. And that's our same plight today. If you really believe the LGBTQ community are lost, then make way for them to be found. Do everything you can to be found. The rest of the sermon, um, uh, I've taken about maybe 20% of what I was originally going to share, and I've applied it to uh, this uh, first portion. And so track with me. I'm going to try to move through it as briskly as possible uh, without losing the value of what needs to be said. Uh, We find ourselves in week two of our series in the book of Proverbs. And the title today is How Wisdom Works. And asking how it works is important because it doesn't just work. I think the uh, misnomer about wisdom is that you and I, we think we want it. If I said, show of hands, how many of you want to be wise? Everybody would raise their hands. It's sort of a flippant question. You know, it's a foregone conclusion that everybody wants wisdom. How many of you have problems? Everybody raise their hands. How many of you want wisdom to solve those problems? Everybody raise their hands, right? But do we really want it? Do we really have a taste for it? Do you even know what wisdom is? What does it mean to be wise? 
to be a person that knows how to be wise. Have you ever met a wise person, a person that you deem wise? They're usually way older. And my experience is they've been through way more suffering and pain than you have. And so if you say you want to be wise, God says, okay, let's go. It's going to cost you everything. Reminds me of the story of my uh, pastor back in college. He's basically the reason I left the medicine track and jumped onto the pastor track. And at the climax of all the tumult in his life, he found himself in a hospital bed uh, right before just undergoing triple bypass surgery. And he says, he shared with me personally, he had this vision he says he was in a spiritual supermarket store, superstore, and he was running up and down the house and piling in all these spiritual gifts and character that he's always wanted. Humility, give me some of that. Wisdom, give me some of that. Patience, I want that. Ability to prophesy, I want that. Speaking in tongues, I want that. He's just piling his cart high. And then he got in line to pay for all of these items. And then he looked at the cashier and began to see the price that people had to pay for these things. And then he says in his vision, he saw himself turn around and put everything back where he found it. His cart was empty. And that's what it is. I think this is how wisdom works. James chapter 1, verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So, you know, we've read, some of us have read this verse before, and we've prayed it. God, give me wisdom. And he will, like 40 years later. Because <laughs> that's how wisdom works. God answers prayers outside of our constraint of time. He's not bothered by the pain we experience because his son died to suffer with us, and as far as he's concerned, he has all of eternity. We don't have quite the same vantage point. We walk through it differently, but the promise holds true. If you lack it, and that's all of us, and we ask for it, that's all of us, it should be, and he will give it to all of us. That's how wisdom works. But what will it cost you to get it? What will it cost you to be the kind of person that actually wants it or can handle it or has a taste for it? Today's passage says wisdom will be attractive to you. It's not attractive to me. I want the quick fix. I want it here and now. And I don't want to pay anything for it. I want free wisdom and you get what you pay for. And that's how I ruined my life. Jesus says often in Scripture when somebody uh, is interrupting him from something he was moving on to, somebody would interrupt him trying to get his attention, and his question would be very simple. He would stop everything, turn to the person and say, what do you want me to do for you? If Jesus asked me that question, what do you want me to do for you? Honestly, I don't have an answer. I have to sift through so many things. I'm only getting one wish, and I can't ask for more wishes, so I got to really, really think about it. 
I remember the time that I wanted Susie so badly. And I prayed and prayed for Susie, and I got Susie. I won't say the second part. There was this one time that I wanted that house. It was in Bayside, Queens. It was just perfect. You guys, it was perfect. And I prayed and I prayed, and I got that house. And then just three short years later, I was praying and praying and praying for God to sell that house. There was a time when I wanted to be the pastor of this church so badly. I was... What do you want me to do for you? Do you know what you would say? I know you have a mortgage to pay off, but is that your answer? I know you want that job. Is that your answer? I know you've got grandchildren, and you want them to do well, but is that your answer? I wonder, before, right before John Lindbergh passed, the very last earthly thought he had, what did he want? What did he pray After you've been through everything, what do you want Jesus to do for you? My guess is, none of, most of us, we don't know what we want. We are too dumb to know what we want. We're too shallow. We're too short-sighted. We're too terminal in our thinking. We can't answer that question. It's too penetrating of a question. Jesus, you ask too much of us when you ask us what we want because our desire, our truest desires are hidden from us. I had somebody tell me this week that they wish they had better hair. That was me. <laughs> My hair just stands straight up. Another person told me this week that they wish they weighed something different. That was also me. But that's not my answer. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Are you wise enough to know? Do you know how to peel back all the layers of the supposed yous that exist? Do you know how to sift through all of the pain points in your life to get to your actual, truest, deepest longing? How old will you be by the time you figure out what it is you should ask for? And the testimony of Christian scripture is, by the time you get to your wisest place, your most humble, broken, truest self, the thing that you're going to find yourself asking for is Jesus himself. And so as scripture says, by the time you know everything, by the time the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea, by that time when you know everything there is to know, you will bend the knee by choice, that you will want Jesus himself, that nothing else is actually it. That's what Jeff shared today. And that's what I think you're going to share by the time God gets done with you, by the time life gets done with you. And to get there, what you're asking for is wisdom. I want us to uh, read the passage together today uh, that was read for us today. But I want you to read it with keeping in mind what we just uh, have been talking about. I'll read it out loud for us. Follow along with me on the screens. My child, if you receive my words and store up my commands within you by making your ear attentive to wisdom, 
and by turning your heart to understanding. I mean, let me just pause there. We're not attentive to wisdom yet. We're not turning our heart to understanding. Our hearts are scattered all over the place. Indeed, if you call out for discernment, we're not calling out for discernment yet. Raise your voice for understanding. We're not raising our voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver, we're not seeking it like silver. And search for it like hidden treasure, we're not seeking for it like hidden treasure. Then, and only then, you will understand how to fear the Lord. And you will discover knowledge about God. For the Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up effective counsel for the upright and is like a shield for those who live with integrity to guard the paths of the righteous and to protect the way of his pious ones. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good way for wisdom will finally, then and only then, enter your heart. And moral knowledge will finally be attractive to you. Discretion will protect you then. Understanding will guard you then to deliver you from the way of the wicked then, from those speaking perversity who leave the upright paths, who walk in the dark ways, who delight in doing evil. They rejoice in perverse evil, those whose paths are morally crooked and who are devious in their ways. To live the wise life, to be wise, to understand the process of getting to places where you understand what wisdom is and desire it, long for it, to search for it. That's the whole show. That's what we call life. What's your life about? Your life is getting to a place where you are searching for wisdom, where your heart wants wisdom, where you are attentive to wisdom. And if you are going to be honest about yourself, you have to say, I'm attentive to a million other things, but not wisdom. For me, wisdom has been a flippant request, something that I just like rattle off when I'm desperate, when I'm scared, when I'm fearful, when I'm bored. But really, when I have the energy, when I have the resources, what I want is other things. I have not desired wisdom. That is my true confession anyways. I do want to point out that in chapter 2 and throughout the book of the Proverbs, uh, wisdom is referred to as a wise wife. Uh, the wife of noble character is called. It's personified as a wife. And then foolishness is personified as, as an adulterous woman. I, I feel I need to say that because it's not a knock on women. When uh, the, uh, uh, Solomon talks about the adulterous women, he's not being literal. He's personifying foolishness. Okay? That's important uh, for you to know. Last week, we called this way of desiring wisdom hunger. And this week, I want to call it Humility. I want to invite you to humble yourself, to confess all the ways you have not sought wisdom and say, God, the reason my life is going the way it is, the reason I don't understand, the reason I keep tripping, maybe it's because I have not desired wisdom. I've been so distracted. I've been going down false trails my whole life. And of course, the most humble one of us all is Jesus. 
I want to read uh, these verses from the book of John. If you want to read or study about the humility of Christ, read the book of John. Uh, the whole book reads like a testament to his humility. So I'll read these verses. I'm going to make my final closing comments about wisdom and human sexuality and our church, and then we'll close. Please follow along with me here. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. I'm not here on my own authority. I'm not seeking glory for myself. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Jesus was humble, and so he is our word of wisdom. And I want to remind us that your opinion on human sexuality is not necessarily wisdom. It's your opinion. So I want to invite you to empty yourself before God and say, God, fill me with your wisdom. How do you view the LGBTQ community? What's our role as a church? What's my role as a follower of Christ, as a believer in Scripture? How do I finally love and engage the culture? How do I do this, Lord? Give me wisdom. I want to do what you are doing. I want to say the words you are giving to me. Would you humble yourself? Let's bow our heads. God, thank you for this day. Uh, it's mixed with lots of different things, but it's also a day that you have made. And so we rejoice in it and are glad. Thank you for the body we get to belong to, for the community we get to walk with, the scripture which we get to open, and the many, many opportunities to love and serve and give of ourselves. Help us to know how to do this with wisdom in all humility. God, if you asked our church, what do you want me to do for you? Help us to know how to answer that simple question. In Jesus' name, amen.